Hello, Connecticut, and welcome to the Paid Leave Podcast. The title uh, basically says it all. I'm Nancy Barrow, and I will be delving into this new state program and how it can help you and your family. This podcast will give you information you should know about Connecticut Paid Leave and maybe just a little bit more. Connecticut Paid Leave brings peace of mind to your home, family, and workplace. Welcome to the Paid Leave Podcast. On this episode, we are focusing on heart health. According to the Office on Women's Health, heart disease is the number one killer of American women, and stroke is fourth. While heart disease is most common in older women, most women between 40 and 60 years old have at least one risk factor for heart disease. Connecticut Paid Leave lets you take time away from work to take care of your own serious health condition or that of a loved one. You can get up to 12 weeks of income replacement and take that at one block or intermittently or at a reduced schedule from work. You have one year to take that leave. Joining me in this discussion is Dr. Supriya Tegadi, Assistant Professor of Cardiology from UConn Health Center and also the Director of Women's Health. Thank you so much for joining me today in this uh, important discussion. Thank you so much for having me. This is very important. I agree with you. It is. Well, this is your life, so, (laughs) and you've studied a lot about it. Um, I would like to know, what's the messaging that you would like to get out there to the population and, and women in particular? So heart disease is very, very common. It's one of the leading causes of uh, death in women. Uh, And I think we can do a lot. Um, It's a lifestyle change and it starts early. So we have to take this on like an everyday basis, every meal basis and sort of focus on uh, on our health. If not, uh, big prices coming in future. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that you say sort of taking a holistic approach to it because it's multifaceted, right? But why is heart disease the number one killer of women? As we age, risk factors including high blood pressure, obesity, hypertension, uh, diabetes, all these things will add up. Smoking is a very big risk factor, mm. so, you know, being sedentary, not exercising on a regular basis. So these sort of catch up and uh, women especially, I think uh, we don't take care of ourselves as much as we should sometimes. And uh, and it, it does all these factors together will lead to increased uh, cardiovascular disease, heart attack and stroke. Interesting that you say that because women are, for most circumstances, the caregiver to people. So they don't <laughs> take care of themselves as, as well as they should. Why are women's symptoms so much more complex and difficult to diagnose, like in a heart attack situation? Women have traditionally have had sort of um, uh, different symptoms than men. Men typically will say, there's an elephant sitting on my chest. It's heavy pressure. They're short of breath. But in women, it can be jaw pain, arm pain, uh, heartburn with nausea kind of symptoms. And say a middle-aged woman, she'll be like, oh, this is nothing. Let me take some Tums and go to bed. Uh, But truly, they're having an event. Uh, a heart attack and uh, you know first the patient brush, brushes it off and then if if and when they come to the emergency room sometimes because symptoms are atypical we as medical professionals are also uh, not as attentive we need that ekg all we need is that one ekg to see if this is a heart attack or not but it's been shown in studies that the time to get that ekg is delayed uh, and then hence time is vital time is precious here so as we lose time, we are losing, you know, heart tissue. So 
And that's why I think it's a little bit harder for women to recognize the symptoms. And even as, you know, medical professionals, uh, we have also lagged behind in diagnosing them. So is there education going on with health professionals to recognize that women are atypical for their symptoms? Yes, uh, there is definitely more education going on from EMT to nursing, because those are the first people who actually meet patients. Right. As people walk into the emergency room and then the other ER providers to grab that EKG sooner rather than later and pay attention to their symptoms. Uh, cardiologists, we want to spread this word in the community that, you know, pay attention to yourself, pay attention to your body. You don't feel good. That EKG is essential to diagnose heart attack. So really taking this opportunity to spread the word. Yeah. Do hormones play a part in women and their heart attacks? Like, would menopause cause more issues with women when they lose those hormones and they are not taking hormone replacement? Or how does that play out with with women? We're complex. Let's just face that. Yes. Yes, (laughs) we are complex and we are different and we are half the population. So it is very important to recognize how, how different our symptoms are. Um, heart disease in women, in younger women, can be different. There are other, you know, cardiovascular issues that younger women face. And as we get older and hit menopause, uh, the the endogenous hormonal uh, protection that we have, as that wanes and we hit menopause, the risk of heart disease increases. That's the time obesity increases. Mm. That's the time pre-diabetes and diabetes come in. That's when the cholesterol really becomes like off balance and, you know, so, and, and that all that together will increase the risk of heart disease. And I, I want to emphasize one thing is that as the director of the cardio, uh, cardiac women's health at UConn Health, um, I, I'm seeing all patients at younger age, right? Like if women have, say, gestational diabetes, they mm. have preeclampsia during pregnancy, they've had severe eclampsia, difficulty conceiving. So these are all markers. Again, when we educate women in their early 30s saying, you know what, these are the risk factors. You have to move more. You have to eat better. You have to exercise. Take care of yourself. Quit smoking. If we do that in their 30s, we are, we are making a big impact when they come to their middle age. And uh, we are starting a program like that. But again, there's so much work to be done, so much more awareness to be spread. You know? and, and education, it, like really during pregnancy is really important. Like if you do get that gestational diabetes and... That's yeah. really interesting. I didn't know that was a risk for future heart yes. issues. Wow. Yes. Um, again, it starts from, say, difficulty conceiving to high blood pressure during pregnancy to eclampsia, preeclampsia symptoms. All these uh, are risk factors because they're they're telling us that there's microvascular disease going on mm. at a young age. So this definitely increases risk of high blood pressure, heart disease and diabetes uh, as we age. But if we can take care of ourselves, lose that weight, start exercising, quit smoking, that will have a major impact on our long-term health. Men sometimes will get disease at at a younger age. Um, They can be in there, again, now we are seeing late 30s, 40s, right? Like that that is a younger age. But at the same time, women, when they're hitting menopause, similar disease, sometimes more aggressive is seen. Mm. Um, Widowmaker is when the front wall of the heart uh, is is affected. And again, lesions can be similar, both men and women. Mm. But women, again, as they're underdiagnosed, don't get treatment right away. 
what do you do interventionally to prevent heart attacks? I know you were talking about cholesterol. So should we have cholesterol screenings younger? Do you think that we should really have a baseline, sort of like you do with mammograms or colonoscopies? Do you think that we should have screenings for heart health? Definitely. So uh, between the age of 40 to 79, there's a lot of data as to cholesterol check, right? We need a cholesterol check, annual cholesterol check, and we need to uh, risk assess. So as providers, as physicians, we do what we call pooled cohort equations and assess the risk of an individual. And this is what we call primary prevention, where people have not had disease, but we want to prevent it. So we have to see what is their family history. Is there a strong family history of heart disease? What is their cholesterol like? Um, and, you know, is there pre-diabetes, diabetes going on? And we have to risk assess all patients because if they're at a higher risk, even if before any symptoms, starting a cholesterol-reducing medication and an aspirin is very much beneficial. And intermediate risk is where most of our patients are, where we are like, you know what, this is not a strong indication, but cholesterol is not, not right. There's a family history. So we have to take all that into account. There is some data to support what we call coronary artery calcium scoring. It's called a tax score. Um, it is very helpful in patients where there are intermediate risk, there's a family history. And when we want to be sure about, okay, what are we dealing with? Is there a big role of statins here? And, and that score in selected individuals, I'm not saying it's for everybody, uh, but for selected individuals, will really help them guide therapy in future. And can you correct cholesterol with diet? I know that they say eating oatmeal is really important. <laughs> and even egg whites versus eggs. Can you correct your cholesterol with diet? Definitely. And diet and lifestyle is the foremost. And every time we add a medication, it should be in addition to diet and uh, diet, lifestyle and exercise. Because we can get a lot of benefit by fixing our diet and exercising. Mm -hmm. We can, you know, if patients are pre-diabetic, right, when they eat better, they can control that instead of starting medications up front. Losing weight, losing 5% of body weight will bring down blood pressure, will sort of uh, have a beneficial effect on diabetes, so lean body mass. And this we can do with diet and exercise. So again, being plant-based diet or Mediterranean diet does not mean rice, pasta, and bread. It does not mean that. <laughs> no, that's not uh, the good. Feel, that's not the good stuff. That's not the good carbs. That's <laughs> no. not the good carbs. Um, so we need more complex carbohydrates, lots of vegetables, all colorful vegetables you can see. They are low in carbs, but they're excellent source of all vitamins and minerals, uh, and has been really shown uh, to help. Our Mediterranean diet is really excellent from avocados to olive oil to fish. That's your protein and fat source. Uh, but it's same thing if it's coming from red meat and processed meat, there it takes like that is uh, really increasing your LDL cholesterol and, and that will have a deleterious effect. And exercise, I cannot emphasize how important it is. If people are exercising, um, you know, a strenuous, a high intensity exercise, 75 minutes a, a week is what's been suggested. And uh, if people are going for a brisk walk, so that's like a moderate intensity exercise, so at least 150 minutes a week. So all these things is a must upfront. Medications are in addition. Get your body moving. In, yes, get your body moving, whether it's Zumba or swimming. Yeah, it's very interesting because, you know, during COVID, life has changed and people are working from home and they're very sedentary. Yeah. 
Are you finding that that is happening? I mean, I know it's only been three years and I don't know if you can really do any kind of research for that. But how has COVID affected people? First of all, uh, patients who needed help didn't seek help. You know, the first year, year and a half through COVID, um, people had heart attacks, didn't come to the facility, didn't, didn't seek medical help. So we are seeing a lot more aggressive disease in those patients. Uh, secondly, again, two, three years of staying home, eating cookies, not exercising. Uh, you know, people like going to the gym, people like swimming, you know, outdoor activities, but not as much. Uh, kind of too early to sort of, I think, to see long-term effects from there. But yeah, obesity, especially childhood obesity, is so much more rampant now. And third, uh, COVID itself, right? Like um, COVID has caused myocarditis. We are seeing uh, young patients, um, you know, young athletic college students who didn't really fall sick from COVID. That was my Not niece. Really sick from COVID itself. Yeah. yeah, she was an athlete and she got COVID yeah. and, and all of her friends who were very athletic as well also got myocarditis. Yeah, it uh, there is a little concern that, you know, COVID, especially the Pfizer vaccine may have caused some myocarditis. But again, when you look at COVID itself, um, young people didn't really fall sick from COVID. It was a good cold kind of symptom. And now we are seeing so much more atrial fibrillation. Young patients have suffered myocarditis where the heart function has reduced. Um, rarely it has caused, uh, you know, what we call fulminant myocarditis leading to heart failure. Um, but again, um, COVID virus itself has done just so much more damage. And I, I think in the next five years is when we are actually going to find out what the burden is. Yeah. And, and I think people don't know, right? Like they, they just took the vaccine because that's what they were told to do. And we didn't want to get COVID because actually getting COVID could have been more deadly for a lot of people. So I do think that there is going to be some interesting information that will come out about COVID yes. with heart disease, I think. It'll be very interesting to see. I wanted to talk to you about a friend of mine who was 38 years old. He worked at my former job at a radio station, and he ended up not feeling well. He thought he had the flu, and the next thing we know, he's in the hospital getting quadruple bypass as a 38-year-old African-American. But do African-Americans have a higher propensity for heart disease? Uh, Yes. Um, African-Americans in general tend to have a lot more hypertension than um, sort of similar profile Caucasians. And uh, there is data from what we call the MESA study that was performed, where uh, they had mostly sort of Caucasian patients, but good chunk of African-American patients and Hispanics. So when they did coronary calcium score, for similar coronary calcium score, African-Americans and Hispanics have a lot more morbidity and mortality from heart disease. Um, Yes, so definitely um, African-Americans have a higher risk of heart disease, need more aggressive treatment and screening up front. But 38 is very, very young. Heart disease and prevention, it's a lifestyle change. It's very easy to, you know, drive by McDonald's and, you know, or like a fast food restaurant, pick up that that meal, the, the fried red meat, right? Like, uh, but uh, staying healthy is effort. It is an everyday effort, uh, exercising, making time for yourself, that good 30, 40 minute brisk walk, go on hikes with family over the weekend. It's a lifestyle change. A meal planning, you know, eating more vegetables. You need to go grocery shopping every two, three days. You can't store, you know, spinach and broccoli for like weeks. It's not happening. 
So it is a lifestyle change and we as a community have to work towards it. Tell me a little bit about genetics because uh, I know that you mentioned that and it plays a part. If one or both of your parents have had some kind of heart issues or heart disease, are you at a higher risk for that? Definitely. So it is a known risk factor uh, uh, that uh, if there's a premature coronary artery disease in the family, say father younger than 50 years or like women younger than 65 years, that's premature. So there's definitely higher risk um, of heart disease. Again, sometimes patients can be lean and exercise, uh, but still that cholesterol, uh, lo- the good cholesterol is low and the bad cholesterol is not bad. And triglycerides a little bit high. So when you look at the numbers, they're not bad. But if there is a family history, there's a significantly higher risk. So those people should seek medical care sooner and, you know, get the cholesterol checked. Is there a role for statin? And again, those are the patients who might benefit by a coronary calcium score and sort of more tailored medications. But statins are are extremely important on those patients. Do you encourage people to take CPR so they can intervene with a loved one if they have to? I think we all saw Damar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills. He suffered a cardiac arrest on the field. And one of the coaches, line coaches, I think, um, performed CPR and kept him alive until he got to the hospital. How important is CPR? And do you encourage people to take CPR? And do you think it should be something that they do at school so everybody kind of knows how to do it? I think so, because time is precious. Time is precious. You're losing seconds, minutes. And that's when, you know, some patients, unfortunately, it leads to brain death. Um, So starting CPR right away will, um, you move oxygen, the heart is, you know, you compress the chest. I think high school students should learn these things. You know, this is, again, some skill, you know, which will help. Like we have AEDs in like all public facilities, right? So knowing to use the AEDs, you know, grabbing the simple CPR and AED will save lives. I think it's essential for young folks to learn these things. Strokes, how can we prevent those? And and what is a TIA? Is that the start of a stroke, a mini stroke? So TIA is a transient ischemic attack. As there is coronary artery disease in the heart vessels, same thing happens in carotid arteries, which are the vessels which supply the brain. Uh, there can be a fat deposition and atherosclerotic plaque disease, and that sort of flicks off and causes a stroke. Uh, if it if the symptoms are short-lasting and resolve within 24 hours, we call it a TIA. But again, that's a marker that, that a bigger stroke might be coming. And typically, patients tend to get it soon, and that's why patients are kept in the hospital and we, we take a look at the carotid arteries. Again, um, Especially when people have a stroke or a TIA, getting medication or the thrombectomy is essential. Again, crucial. These are all sort of very sensitive to time because once we lose the neuron, then there will be deficits. So if patients have symptoms of stroke or a TIA, they should seek emergency care right away. And how important is it to have a support system and caregivers if you do suffer a heart attack and you do have to go through the rehab and you know, you can't drive yourself. How important is it to have a support system? Extremely important. And uh, again, going through the whole procedure, say patients get angiogram, angioplasty versus a bypass surgery if they need, but recovering from it is is a long way. Uh, Our goal is to bring patients to their previous health, where they feel good, they're exercising, they're, they're out there doing stuff. So to get there, cardiac rehabilitation is extremely essential. 
Uh, cardiac rehab program is where patients go on a regular basis. There's a cardiac nurse who's trained in these things. And they watch their heart rate, blood pressure, and the exercise is gradually increased. Um, to an extent that patients are comfortable pushing themselves, exercising, and it takes six to eight weeks, sometimes 12 weeks program. And, you know, the, the amount of education going on there is, is so important. So enough data to, su- to suggest and support that cardiac rehabilitation leads to that full recovery. It's not just that hospital stay. It is, right. It's the long-term recovery that we want. So very, very important. All patients with heart attack, stroke, peripheral arterial disease, should do rehabilitation. And how beneficial do you think Connecticut paid leave can be with your patients and their caregivers being able to have some income replacement and take time off from work and not have to worry about that because stress is also not good for these patients at all? Agreed. 100% agreed. Because, um, you know, if you have to take time off work and you know, you know, financially it's not going to work out for a family, then, it, you know, people are less likely to do it. Um, again, I have older patients, you know, they're, they're 75 years of age. They're like, you, they can't drive by themselves for a little bit and they're scared to drive by themselves. So when they have that support group where they're able to go without having this financial stress, Uh, I think it's priceless. It's priceless. Yeah. And I really hope that we can get some information to your patients and their caregivers. So they know that this exists because a lot of people still don't know that they can get Connecticut paid leave. Yeah. No, I think this is very important. Uh, Again, we want good working, healthy community. And to build that, it's the lifestyle change. It's recovering from an illness because if, if your workforce is going out of work because they don't feel like themselves after an event at a young age of 38, 40, you're, you're losing those workforce. And if you invest some time and effort up front, then they make full recovery. They're back at work. They're doing stuff. That's what we want, a yeah. healthy community. And, and getting back to their lifestyle. Uh, correct. <laughs> what advice would you give a 30-year-old to avoid heart disease? Um, very good question. Uh, 30 year old, uh, I think uh, at that age, we feel invincible that, you know, we feel great. And uh, But taking care of yourself is so, so important. Uh, exercise, move, join a hiking program, swimming program, the running club, you know, um, exercise, eat better, eat better. Uh, you know, that quick pickup at, uh, at the drive through is easy, but it's not the right way to go. Bring your young ones to Whole Foods, bring them grocery shopping, let them pick their fruits, you know, pick their snack. That'll get them more involved in healthier lifestyle. Quit smoking. Smoking is just um, not okay. Smoking is not okay. Um, And, you know, if we lose a little bit of weight, cut down on alcohol consumption, uh, move as much as we can, that'll be great. And if young women have had any pregnancy-related complication, these things become foremost in her life. Again, young children, young families, hard, but if we take care, we can we can change. Do you work in tandem with gynecologists, you know, with women and, and that whole situation? Is, is there some kind of uh, conversations that you can have with a gynecologist if you have concerns about a woman's health during pregnancy? Yes. So um, OBGYN uh, and uh, maternal fetal medicine uh, physicians who see patients for high-risk pregnancies, they see a lot more sort of cardiovascular complications, preeclampsia, eclampsia. 
So education there is very important, but I feel like what I've noticed is that after after the pregnancy, after delivery of the child, it's, they don't go back. And, and after that, there is a lag. So uh, American College of Cardi- uh, Cardiology and ACOG, the OBGYN folks, we recommend that women who've had any of these three months after delivery should get a full physical, should get the cholesterol check, should get the blood pressure check. Th- that does not translate uh, in, in these women. And education, 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 education. Um, but again, we make patients appointments when they are busy, they don't come. But again, we are trying more. Now telehealth is there. So, you know, a, a young mother does not have to leave the baby or find childcare. So we are reaching p- patients through telehealth. So uh, a lot more to do, uh, a lot more awareness, uh, but we are on the right track. I think. And I guess talking about COVID, do you think people who have had myocarditis during COVID, do you think that they should keep an eye out or should they go to a cardiologist? Yeah. So if patients have had myocarditis, they should follow up with a cardiologist on a regular basis. There are some medications which help uh, help the heart remodel uh, in the right way. And um, they should be considered in all patients who have had myocarditis. Uh, we are seeing more arrhythmias in patients, uh, more palpitations, more atrial fibrillation. Um, and there is a thought that it may have been related to COVID. Again, we don't have concrete data yet, but in, in the next few years, uh, I think we'll see that more. But if patients have had myocarditis, they should see a cardiologist. There are medications which help. And again, if it happened with COVID, it can happen with a different virus. So the medications are very important. I really appreciate you being on this podcast and and giving a lot of great information. And, you know, we just have to eat better and start moving. Yes. Uh, no, thank you for having me. This is a great opportunity. And we want the community, our people to know how important this is. Again, small baby steps. It's not going to happen overnight, but it's the lifestyle change. And that's what's going to matter long term. Thank you so much. And for more information about UConn, you can go to health.ucon.edu. And for information to apply for benefits, you can go to ctpaidleave.org. This has been another edition of the Paid Leave Podcast. Please like and subscribe so you'll be notified about new podcasts that become available. Connecticut Paid Leave is a public act with a personal purpose. I'm Nancy Barrow, and thanks for listening.